Hallelujah. Father, we testify with the scriptures that reveal to us that you have revealed yourself in the things that are made such that no, no creature, no sentient human being has ever been born who has an excuse, Lord. When they look across the landscape of your wondrous works of providence and creation, we know that there is a God and we must answer to him. Truly, your goodness is seen and the beauty that surrounds us. More than this, you have revealed yourself to us in the face of Jesus Christ, the incarnate Son who came, was born, and delivered to us the gospel of the kingdom and that died as the sacrifice, the sufficient mediator, the propitiary sacrifice in our place. And for this, we are so thankful. We have seen your face in creation, and we have seen your face in the scriptures. And now as we open your wonderful word today, I pray that we would see you and behold you in more of your beauty, power, glory, authority, and purposes that we might, Lord, move from this place to more accurately proclaim and more consistently obey that which you've laid forth for the true believer as a way to walk in. Lord, I pray for the unbeliever in the hearing of this message today that they might see your face in the proclamation of your scriptures and turn from their wicked ways and turn from their sin and place faith in the only power to save Jesus Christ and his work on Calvary the ascended Christ who now rules and reigns before the right hand of the Father, forever subduing all his enemies under his footstool until the day of his kingdom consummate when we will rejoin, we will join with those who have gone before and those who are yet to come before that glorious worship service for all time, giving nothing but praise, honor, and glory to the King of kings and the Lord of lords, God himself for all that he's done and making himself known and accomplishing that miraculous work of each of our salvation to the praise of his great name. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. We pray that the Spirit would use the means of the delivery of this message today to conform us to the image of his Holy Son. We thank you, Lord, for this opportunity. May you be glorified in each element of this service to the advance of your kingdom and to the praise of Jesus Christ. Amen. Hallelujah. This morning we have the joy and privilege of opening up the scriptures and considering them together. Let us do so by turning to Genesis, the last portion of chapter 27, into the first portion of chapter 28. As we pick up on our series following the life of the patriarchs, especially Jacob, and the transfer of the patriarchal blessing from Isaac, his father, to Jacob, the son, the covenant son, the chosen one in the lineage of the Messiah. This is the context of our passage today, Genesis 27, 41 through 28, verse 9. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of God's Word. The aim of this morning's message is to preach submission to the terms of covenant from the life of Jacob. We see by way of contrast and by way of reflection how God has revealed how serious His covenant terms are. My prayer today is that we would realize the seriousness of salvation, the exclusive means that God has granted for us to be saved, as we learn these things afresh and perhaps in new light from the account of those that have preceded us in God's salvation plan, even Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the line of the covenant unto the coming of Jesus Christ, the true anointed one, our Savior and our Lord. The title of this morning's message is Jacob's House. House, of course, is a biblical word that refers to family, lineage, legacy, that which is built in the family line that stands for what that family pursued with all their heart and the 
testimony that they leave behind. That would be house in the way we mean it today. What do we learn of Jacob's house during these formative moments of his life and the grace of God evident in light of sin? That would be a major theme of our message today. So as you're able, out of reverence for God's scriptures, would you stand for the reading of his word today? We begin our reading. Listen as the word is proclaimed in Genesis 27, 41, again through 28, 9. Here is the holy word of God. Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran, and stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you, for he, and he forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Verse 46, when Rebekah said to Isaac, then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? 28.1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Arise, go to Paddan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. Thus Isaac sent Jacob away, and he went to Paddan Aram to Laban, the son of Bethuel, the Aramean, the brother of Rebekah, Jacob's and Esau's mother. Verse 6, Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there, and that he blessed him and he directed him, You must not take a wife from the Canaanite women, and that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. So when Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father, Esau went to Ishmael and took his wife besides, as his wife besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. This is the word of God. You may be seated. <clears throat> One of the preeminent biblical theologians of the last century, Gerhardus Voss, was commenting on Jacob's character as it's recorded in passages like this, including other, others of the patriarchs and those moments of brutal honesty where they give us their dirty laundry as well as their legacy of honor. He says the following, Reprehensible features are rather, are rather strongly brought out. This is done in order to show that divine grace is not the reward for, but the source of godly traits. Grace overcoming human sin and transforming human nature is the keynote of the revelation here. Let me repeat that last portion again. This is done in order to show that divine grace is not the reward for, but the source of godly traits. 
Grace overcoming human sin and transforming human nature is the keynote of the revelation here. Close quote. In short, we could summarize by saying that Jacob's legacy and the legacy of the patriarchs as we see their sin featured alongside the notable portions of their lives reinforce to us the message from all of Scripture, you are saved by grace alone, and this is not of your own doing or your own works. No one can boast of their salvation. Instead, they can only boast of the cross, ultimately. The means, the covenant, whereby God has secured hope for the future by way of His sovereign hand, sovereign grace indeed. These themes continue, and especially in the life of Jacob. They are evident, and in our text today, it's no exception. The account of Jacob and versus Esau and the events surrounding the conflict. You guys remember those two Hebrew words, Esau and Sitna? They mean quarreling and hostility. It continues to follow Isaac's home. And the, uh, the account of Jacob, therefore, dramatically illustrates a principle declared to us in Psalm 127. And this was our worship text today that Evan read for us earlier. It begins with these words, this truth declared for all time, quote, Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord establishes an institution, you could say by extension and application, unless the Lord orders a family, unless the Lord is sovereign over a marriage relationship, they labor in vain who attempt to build those things. Unless the Lord builds the house, including the house of Jacob, those who build it labor in vain. Isaac intends to give the patriarchal blessing, not to Jacob, but to Esau, even though God is clearly revealed by prophecy, by his very word to Jacob and Rebekah, that the younger the weaker is, in fact, the covenant son. What's Isaac intending to do? He's trying to labor for his own house the way he'd prefer. Uh, he's not alone. Isaac intends to give, or not only does Isaac intend to give the patriarchal blessing to Esau rather than Jacob, but Jacob conspires to steal the blessing and through his efforts successfully tricks his father. And therefore, he will become a fugitive for 20-some years and our text today marks the beginning of that journey. Furthermore, Rebecca, fearful of losing both her sons and the fallout of her scheme, why should I be bereft of you both in one day, convinces Isaac to send her favorite son Jacob away for a bride, not knowing that she will never see him again. Meanwhile, Esau seeks favor with his father by adding yet another wife to his harem, from the Ishmaelites, even as he sought to kill his brother for securing the covenant blessing. So you see all four of these characters attempting to build the house of the Lord in vain, show that their, their uh, purposes in this regard and their actions in this regard are nothing short of foolish. And as a result, the house of Jacob, excuse me, the house of Isaac is in shambles. It's in shambles because none of these characters were trusting the Lord at this time to build the house. Consequently, their labors proved vain and devastating. Nevertheless, and here's the hope, the plans of God are not ultimately threatened by the foolishness of their sin, nor any sin for that matter. This is the message. His hand, the hand of Yahweh, God Almighty, as He's revealed in the text, his hand is at work to build himself a house in spite of these events. In our text today, 
God Almighty intervenes and will soon reveal himself again, yes, even personally to Jacob, on his road of exile away from his house to Paddan Aram. And that's the next incident. If you read, continue to read in chapter 28, God proves, he evidences, he illustrates by these means that he himself will build a house in spite of the Esek and Sitna, the quarreling and hostility that has plagued Isaac's home to this point. We have further evidence of this in our text today. We also have a clarification of Jacob's calling in our passage, and that will be our heading. Jacob's calling was clarified at this time by four things. Perhaps we could divide our text by these. Number one, his calling was clarified by fleeing a house corrupted by sin and strife. Number two, Jacob's call was clarified by traveling to the house of Bethuel. Number three, calling clarified by a promise to become a house or a company of many peoples. And number four, calling clarified by a contrast to the house of Esau. First of all, Jacob's calling was clarified by fleeing, in God's providence, a house corrupted by sin and strife. 27, 41 through 46. What is the source of this sin and strife? Well, the consequences of all of this uh, attempt to build the house in vain, according to their own devices. What happens? Well, Esau hates Jacob because of the blessing, verse 41, with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, the days of mourning for my father are approaching. You can see the wheels turning, the murderous scheme that he is concocting in his mind. As soon as the days of mourning my father are done, I will kill my brother Jacob. He's planning on how he will follow in the legacy of Cain and Abel and rise up like that first murderer did in the early pages of Genesis and take the life of the covenant son. But the words of Esau, her older son, were told to Rebekah. And now Rebekah sets about on another scheme. She has to save the life of her favorite son, the younger one, from the murderous intent of the older. That was the consequence, the reaction to her and her younger son's scheme to trick their father, her husband, out of the blessing. So she sent and called Jacob, her younger son, and said, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Repentance versus revenge. Jacob's calling is clarified by fleeing a house corrupted by sin and strife. And what are some of these corrupting influences? What is the sin and strife that is plaguing the home? Well, in the heart of Esau, it's manifesting itself by a claim to vengeance. Esau says, vengeance is mine, saith Esau. Cain said, vengeance is mine, saith Cain. Laban, if you remember, say, said to himself, vengeance is mine. And he enacted vengeance, uh, even going above and beyond what the law of God required in capital punishment because he took justice into his own hands. And any time man proceeds accordingly, he sets himself up as a law unto himself. Esau did not care about the covenant. He did not trust the means that God had supplied. He did not surrender to the word of the Lord, but instead, as was prophesied of him, lived by his own devices. And one of his devices was an adept use of weapons. Esau could take some wild game, no problem, in the field. Esau could defend and take care of himself, and therefore Esau resorts to his most familiar devices to avenge the anger that he feels for being cheated out of what he feels is rightfully his. Vengeance is mine, saith Esau. Esau seeks to comfort himself 
by killing his brother. Since the fall, this world has been plagued by sin and its consequences. And you might deny the true source of, the, of all of the evil and the pain and the wickedness that follows as a result, but I venture that you will not find anyone except a delusional fool who's lost his mind who won't admit to you the pain and evil and difficulty that is evident in their experience and in this world. Everyone agrees. I have been wronged. I have reason to be angry, upset. I deserve, I have the right to be offended. Very popular. Everyone admits there's evil, there's wickedness in the world, there's things that they despise and circumstances that they shun. They all feel in their sin that they deserve better. We're agreed on that point. What separates those who trust in God's covenant versus those who trust in their own devices is what is your source of comfort in times of great pain and anguish? Now for Esau, his source of comfort was taking matters into his own hands, vengeance. You see what his mother said? She sent to Jacob. She says, behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Maybe you've never sat down and written in your secret journal the schemes and plans to kill your enemies. Maybe that's not your default source of comfort. But all of us in our sin can relate to this same principle, can we not? We're tempted to lean on other sources of comfort than perhaps the word and covenant and Holy Spirit of God. The Holy Spirit is called the paraclete. His name is comforter. We're to lean on the Spirit. And what is the means the Spirit uses to reveal Himself and to counsel and direct us as we deal with the fallout of a fallen world and indeed our own sins? He uses the proclamation of the ultimate authority of God's Holy Word. It is the Word of God. It is the covenant assurance of the gospel that is the true source of comfort. Where are you tempted to find comfort when evil befalls you, when life is stressful, when you feel wrong, when someone has done you dirty, when you feel the right to be offended? Where do you find comfort? Do you find it in addictions? Do you find it in resentment? Do you find it in bitterness? Do you find it in gossip? Do you find it in all of these other things that the devil lays before you? as a buffet of false, self-indulgent, self-exalting, idol-worshiping comfort? Reject those things. These things are not according to the covenant. They only cause the systemic roots of entrenched bitterness and sin to grow deeper in the soul of the unrepentant. And this is what was happening in the household of Isaac at this time. Jacob had to flee a house that was corrupted, by sin and strife. He had a brother who was taking vengeance in his heart into his own hands. And this is a problem. This problem plagues us today. I submit to you that the social justice movement, as a pagan world conceives it, is built on the same foundation. It does not trust secular social justice movements, do not trust the Lord to build the house of society, but they trust in other means. They presume to redress the grievances of our day outside of the purview of Scripture and instead to take up the blunt tools of Esau and reserve the right to remain offended until the balances of history has been righted according to their terms. And since there is no faith in the ultimate justice, ultimate justice mediated by a sovereign God on that final day, all we have is this, the tool of government, the tool of our own offense, and this short moment of history for all the wrongs to be righted. 
And there goes the poison that infects our nation and our society, taking the cause of justice that it should be in the hands of God into our own hands. And we demonstrate this when we don't trust his time and we don't trust his terms. Esau was not trusting the timing of God nor his terms and dealing justly with the wrong that was, you know, done against him. And therefore, he took on the burden himself. That burden will kill you. That burden will kill a nation. That burden will, ye will uh, yield war. That burden will lead to murder of the heart and murder in the physical sense. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. I will repay. Romans 12 indicates this. And a government who is properly ordered acknowledges the same and realizes that it is their duty in the limited sense that God delegates to do justly, to set the Esau's free of avenging their own death and so forth. That is to say, there is a duty and a de delegation of justice, but it's in God's time and according to his terms and according to his agency. And if we do not acknowledge that, the corruption, sin, and strife will only increase, increase and produce murderous fruit all the while. Jacob's calling was clarified when he left behind him the sin and strife that was the consequences of his wickedness and the wickedness of his brother. Now in this brother versus brother hatred and animosity, there's a continuation of another theme, seed versus seed, all the way back to Genesis 3.15. We keep mentioning this as it comes forth in the text. There was a proclamation by way of prophecy. The Lord proclaimed to the servant, serpent and, and to Adam and Eve, his audience at the fall, that it will put enmity, that is strife and conflict, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And the battle lines in cosmic history are drawn. There are two types of people. Those who align with the serpent and his means and his promises. You can be like God. You can be a law unto yourself. You don't have to submit to the covenant. There's salvation by your own devices. And those who trust in the seed of the woman, that through God's covenant means to preserve the lineage of the Messiah, Jacob would one day have a son who would be perfect, righteous, and holy, would be the perfect judge, would be the perfect sacrifice, the perfect mediator who would defeat the grave, who would defeat the consequences and take upon himself the punishment that our sin deserve and rise again from the grave to rule and reign for his, over his enemies for all of time. And especially as we realize it personally, his enemies, our own sin and the judgment it deserved, seed versus seed. The blessings of gospel assurance alienate the believer from the unconverted. There's this natural hostility between the two. Romans 8, 7 through 9 tells us this. The mind set on the flesh is hostile to God. Be careful of the kinds of alliances you make with this culture. This culture is trending more wicked, it would seem, every day in many categories. The, hot, the mind set according to the flesh is hostile to God. We must realize that if we are at odds with a decaying, decrepit, and sinful culture, Oftentimes, that is, in fact, a good sign. It's a sign that our allegiance and identity is invested in the true Son of God, in the seed of the woman, as it were, in Jesus Christ. And yes, this does yield conflict. But we, as the forgiven, we who have received God's grace, can proclaim the truth that there is repentance for an Esau if he would but bow his knee at Bethel, so to speak, where God has revealed himself in Christ, who alone is that bridge that ladder between heaven and earth, repent of his sins, taking matters into his own hands, trusting his own devices, put his sources of comfort for his sin aside, his addictions, 
and his vengeance and his hurt, his animosity and his uh, right to be offended and everything else and surrender those and leave them at the altar and trust that Jesus Christ, the son of Jacob, is his salvation. So this house corrupted by sin and strife brings these ideas to the fore. Repentance versus revenge is graphically illustrated. Seed versus seed is dramatically reflected. And finally, we see even now manipulation continues. Rebecca's fleshly actions continue. They're evident in the way that she proceeds. Why is she motivated to give this counsel? Well, it's self-centered. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Me, my, a lot of personal pronouns going on here. Rise, flee to my brother Laban. Stay with him for a while until your brother's fury turns away, till your brother's anger turns from you. He forgets what you have done to him. Then I will send and bring you from here. Notice this motive. Why should I be bereft of both of you in one day? The irony is, is as we mentioned in the introduction, she will never see Jacob again. But her motive was if Esau kills Jacob, Jacob, of course, will be dead, and Esau will be guilty of a capital crime. And if justice is served, he will die. Therefore, under these circumstances, Rebecca reasons that she would be bereft of two sons in one day. So motivated by this selfishness, by this sense of possibility of personal loss, she advocates this next scheme. Then Rebecca said to Isaac, verse 46, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. Is this her primary motive for wanting to send Jacob away to find a wife? If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be for me? I loathe. What good will my life be? Again, motivated by these personal you know, uh, consequences and then mischaracterizing the situation. Once again, she withholds the truth from her husband, doesn't reveal the real tension underneath the surface, the fact that Esau has murder in his heart because Jacob and her conspired to steal the blessing and said she comes up with another reason to send him away, to deceive in part her husband. And so we see the sin and strife continuing, evidenced by this manipulation in the home of Isaac, in the home of Jacob if he doesn't repent and turn. Rebecca's fleshly actions continue to evidence this self-centeredness of motive. Furthermore, she deceives once again, doesn't tell the whole truth. But Isaac's negligence is also apparent in this text. Isaac did not follow the example of Abraham, who did his due diligence to secure a bride for his son, Isaac. Remember, Abraham was concerned about the line, about the covenant line and took it upon himself to make arrangements for his servant, Eleazar, we assume, to go to Paddan Aram, the same place, and to find a bride for his son, Isaac. But now Isaac, not being as vigilant, and growing weary and lax and in his duty, and being apathetic in his responsibility, abdicating in this regard, has not made arrangements for Jacob to be married. For the co- and mind you, if Jacob does not find his covenant bride, the line of the Messiah will not continue. You and I will not meet Jesus Christ if these circumstances do not unfold. They do, but they do unfold in spite of Esau, in spite of Isaac, in spite of Rebekah, and in spite of Jacob. The Lord is laboring to build his house, even though the foolishness and the sinfulness of these characters are evident Self-motivated manipulation and negligence in duty are to come to the fore. 
Isaac is not taken seriously as his father had, securing a covenant bride for his son. Jacob was not his favorite after all. So Jacob is going to flee this situation. And I suggest to you this flight is a picture of repentance. This brings up point number two. Jacob's calling was clarified by leaving a house corrupted by sin and strife. And secondly, by traveling to the house of Bethuel. Verse 20, or 28, verse 1. Then Isaac called Jacob and blessed him and directed him. Notice those three actions. Already repentance is apparent in the text. Isaac is assuming his patriarchal duty now. A leaf has turned. Things are changing. Isaac calls Jacob, blesses him, and directs him. Called, blessed, directed. He says, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. Verse 2, arise, go to Padan Aram to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there, one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. The predestination, I submit to you, is illustrated in this text. What is predestination? It's the choosing by a sovereign God. It's the appointment of his called ones according to his will. How do we know this? We've referenced this before, but I'll just read it to you again because it is uh, part and parcel to the interpretation of the significance of our passage. It says in Romans 9, verse 8, this means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. Esau, pausing, Esau, quintessential child of the flesh, the man's man, the favorite of, of his father, and so forth, the oldest, the strongest, the presumptive heir. <coughs> this means <clears throat> it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God. That is, again, you won't secure salvation by your own devices. But the children of promise are counted as offspring. What makes all the difference? The promise, the word of God, the covenant. For this is what the promise said. Verse 9, about this time next year, I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were either, though they were, uh, uh, though they were not yet born and had done Nothing, either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of his call. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Upon his repentance, in this regard, Isaac calls the least favored son, calls him, calls Jacob blesses him and directs him this i submit is predestination illustrated he didn't call he didn't bless and he didn't direct though he wanted to esau the favored son in his eyes nope instead eventually by god's sovereign hand he submits to the terms of covenant he submits to the word of god he calls jacob the covenant child the one of promise the one prophesied of he calls him and blesses him and directs him the sovereign call of God is modeled thereby in Isaac's actions. This is the paradigm or pattern of salvation. It is God who calls. He doesn't call according to the flesh. He calls according to the promise. He doesn't call according to man's will and devices and means of the flesh. He calls according to his electing grace. And therefore, in Romans 8, 29 through 30, on your own time, you can go over once again what we've come to call in theology the golden chain. As many as he knew, he called and predestined and chose and so forth. There is a chain 
of, of consequences, a chain reaction in the purposes of God that begin with his sovereignty and they end with our salvation and our redemption accordingly. Now this is all under, under uh, a call to something. It's a call to travel to the house of Bethuel. I submit to you that is significant as well. Why? It illustrates, just as the call, bless, and direct illustrates God's predestination. This journey that Jacob is to take illustrates repentance. In chapter 24, do you guys remember? We referenced this a bit already. This is when Abraham commissioned his servant to go and find a wife for Isaac. Abraham was old, well advanced in years. The Lord had blessed him in all things. He grabs his servant, oldest of his household, the one who is trusted, put in charge of all he had, and he makes him swear. He says, uh, that you swear that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but you will go to my country, my kindred, and take a wife for my son Isaac. And where does he go? Where does the servant go? Goes to the exact same place. Before he had finished speaking, verse 15, behold, Rebekah was born to Bethuel, uh, Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the daughter of Nahor. Nahor had come to the well, and you know the rest of the story. The man, with his eyes open, being directed by the Holy Spirit, realizes that this daughter of Bethuel, Rebekah, was to be the wife of his master's son. Blessed be the Lord, he exclaims, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness to my master. So you see... Abraham, because he honored and valued God's covenant purposes, sent his servant on a journey to procure a bride from an area, region, and a line that God had blessed. And a lot of this is symbolic. We'll even see that in Bethuel's name shortly. Nevertheless, there was a path of obedience that was ordained by God's, in God's purposes that Abraham's servant would go and to gain a bride. And now as Jacob is called to leave a house corrupted by sin and strife behind and travel to the house of Bethuel, he is following the old paths. He's following the path of obedience of the servant of Abraham of old, the exact same direction, going for an almost identical purpose to pursue a bride, a covenant bride. Repentance is illustrated. Repentance, returning to the tried and true, the proclaimed and the biblical paths, the covenant way. His grandfather's servant had gone and had left a legacy of obedience in this regard. And now Jacob was called to repentance, to stop his scheming, to stop his conniving, to stop his deceitful stealing, and to go on a difficult, dangerous journey of faith, following the direction of of his spirit-moved father who called him, blessed him, and directed him to arise and go to Paddan Aram, the house of Bethuel. Traveling to the house of Bethuel was significant not just for these reasons, these reasons, but also the destination itself, which is signified by what Bethuel means. A theme is introduced in this passage based on the name of this fellow I submit. Bethuel means dweller in God, house of God. You put it together and literally it means dweller in the house of God. So the guy whose house that Jacob is called to go to is one, his name signifies, who dwells in the house of God. The commentators have surmised, well, what's better about an Armian than a Canaanite, you know? Why go there and not over here? It seems kind of arbitrary. The Armians were idolaters too, were they not? 
it doesn't have so much to do with the ethnic background as it does what's symbolically illustrated here. We're talking about the building of Jacob's house. He is to forsake the house of corruption and strife, and he is to set his face towards the house of God. And Bethuel himself, his very name means dweller of the house of God. And Jacob is also called to dwell in the house of God. And he meets God face to face on the journey, which we'll see next week, and names the place, the gate of heaven, the house of God. And so this is a significant theme that's coming forth. He's traveling to someplace. He's traveling to the house of God, as it were. God reveals himself to Jacob. He will never be the same. He opens up his eyes and convicts him. Stop trying to build your own house by your scheming. I will build my house. I will do it my way. Take this journey of faith. Repent of your former sin. Set your face to Bethuel. Set your face to Bethel. And you learn uh, to be a dweller in the house of God yourself. And by these means, you will begin to walk in my ways as I change your heart and even according to that pattern laid out by his father, call you, bless you, and direct you. Jacob's calling was clarified by fleeing a house of corruption, sin and strife, traveling to the house of the Lord, as it were, even Bethuel, whose name means dweller in the house of the Lord. And thirdly, Jacob's calling was clarified by a promise to become a house, or in our text translated, congregation of many peoples. Notice this blessing. This is powerful. Isaac is returning to the covenant when he proclaims these things. 28.2, he says, Arise, go to Padan Aram, to the house of Bethuel, your mother's father, and take as your wife from there one of the daughters of Laban, your mother's brother. And then he begins to proclaim prophetically the Abrahamic promise in verses 3 and 4. God Almighty bless you and make you fruitful and multiply you that you may become a company of peoples. A company of peoples. May he give you the blessing of Abraham to you, give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you, that you may take possession of the land of your sojournings that God gave to Abraham. So you see, Isaac knows full well now that this is Jacob, but Isaac has repented of his preference for Esau, his favoritism according to the flesh. And now he has submitted himself to the will of God, remembering presumably the message of before, the younger, the weaker shall serve the older. And he does rightly at this time by proclaiming that patriarchal, Abrahamic covenant promise that came first by God himself and proclaims it over the rightful covenant heir, Jacob. And he says, God Almighty bless you. This term God Almighty, maybe you know the Hebrew, have heard of it, El Shaddai. Famous songs and people have made much of that name and for good reason, El Shaddai. It means God Almighty, Almighty God. You know, in the juxtaposition, it's clear, is it not? You, by your own devices, almighty Esau, by the strength of the bow, will secure your destiny? I don't think so. If you pick a fight with almighty God, who will win? You, Jacob, in your conniving and in your scheming, along with your rebellious mother, Rebecca, will you secure the rights to the covenant promise? No, almighty God will work in spite of these things to change your heart. Isaac, having lost his purpose and direction and fallen out to the vision for what a covenant patriarch ought to give by way of spiritual legacy, will you corrupt the entire messianic line in your negligence? Oh, not, well, yes, if the consequences of your sin can continue, but Almighty God, El Shaddai, intervenes for his glory and namesake, causing Isaac to repent, 
Jacob to turn from his sin, and the covenant promises to continue because El Shaddai has taken sovereign prerogative to intervene. Isaac is prophesying now. He's prophesying and rightfully invoking the name which God revealed to Abraham himself in chapter 17. You see the context really causes the power of this moment to come alive. 17.1, when Abraham was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said to him, I am God Almighty. I am El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless. It goes on with sovereign language to affirm, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant. I will give you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings. I will. Who? El Shaddai, God Almighty. Not Abraham, not Isaac, not Rebekah, not Esau, not Jacob will accomplish anything of merit in their own devices and strength, but instead El Shaddai, God Almighty, will accomplish this. And now Isaac is proclaiming this. This is a promise to become a house, if you will, a congregation, a company, an assembly of many peoples. What is this promise? Well, this is the first time in the scripture, so far as I know, that this word is used. You may become a company of peoples. This literally means a church, a congregation, an assembly. It means a gathered ones, and, and you see that it's not just by natural birth either of many peoples, which means different ethnicities, different backgrounds, different family lines. So the prophecy is this, that as Jacob pursues God's purposes in covenant, one of the promises that will come true is that through this line preserved through Jacob and the covenant bride which he will find in Paddan Aram, there eventually will be a fulfillment of the promise to Seth of old that his tents would become the habitation of the coastlands of Japheth. Or that Abraham, the promise to him that he would become the father of many nations. Or that he would be a light, he would be a blessing to all the peoples of the earth. God would ransom for himself a people from every tribe and tongue and race as the scriptures go on, ethnicity as the scriptures go on to proclaim. This is the blessing that is proclaimed over Jacob. God will gather for himself a people that will rightly be defined as a congregation and assembly called out to a spiritual new identity, the church. Saints, if you are a true believer, if you believe that God has revealed himself this way and ultimately in Jesus Christ, if you have repented and believed, believed and as you gather in this place, you yourselves, us together, are fulfillment and part of this prophecy. We are the company of peoples that was prophesied to Jacob and will attend his way eventually. A promise to be a house of many peoples. Not just the people, which is the seed promise, but also the land. The land promise is reiterated. In spite of his fugitive status, which will continue for like two decades, as he runs away and is often fearful and often frail in his faith, Jacob's future relocation during times of famine in Egypt will also put this, his faith to the test. Imagine how important these words will be to him when Jacob and all his sons go to Egypt. And he and his lineage will be there for a very long time. How long? 400 plus years. Should this be any surprise? No. God had prophesied in Genesis 15 to Abraham, of course Isaac's father, Jacob's grandfather, that there would be 400 years of captivity. Until when? The fullness of the Amorites was complete 
And at that time, this promise right here would be fulfilled. Jacob will need these words later when famine strikes the land and upon the calling of his son, sovereignly placed in Egypt, he leaves in faith with all his boys to a foreign area, not to return for four centuries. Yet this promise was nevertheless given. The prophecy was true. A promise to become a holy house or become a house of many peoples. And so Jacob's calling was clarified by a reiteration and an application of the promise to Abraham that would be fulfilled not all in his lifetime, not even close, but along the way as he placed faith in El Shaddai, God Almighty, who would by his purposes accomplish it. And this stands in stark contrast to the devices that Esau, that Jacob, that Rebekah, that Isaac all leaned on to try to make life better or secure the hope of promise in and of themselves. And this brings up our last point today. Jacob's calling was clarified by fleeing a house of corruption, sin, and strife, traveling to the house, the one who inhabited the house of God, Bethuel, a promise to become a house or a company of many peoples. And finally, Jacob's calling is clarified by a contrast, contrast to the house of Esau. And here we have, in kind of stark opposition to the way God is leading Jacob, Esau left to his own devices in 6 through 9. Now Esau saw that Isaac had blessed Jacob and sent him away to Paddan Aram to take a wife from there. And that as he blessed him, he directed him, you must not take a wife from the Canaanite women. And that Jacob had obeyed his father and his mother and gone to Paddan Aram. And so Esau saw that the Canaanite women did not please Isaac, his father. Esau went to Ishmael and took as his wife, besides the wives he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebaioth. Good idea or bad idea, kids, to add one more wife. What do you guys think? Bad. Yes, God had ordained that marriage be a picture of covenant truth. And this is all through the scriptures. Marriage is not to be taken lightly. It's not to be taken into your own hands according to your own terms and redefined. We should not redefine it institutionally, nor seek to add to God's purposes and plan by various partners in the case of polygamy or in the case of our modern age through so-called gay marriage, homosexual marriage, change its terms. This is the th these are things that Esau does. One who is seeking favor by his own devices. Why does the ungodly and the unbeliever even care about marriage after all? Well, and to use a, you know, a modern turn of phrase, they want their cake and eat it too. There is something in the heart of sinful man that wants the blessings of covenant without submitting to its terms. They want marriage and its blessings, the security and the benefit and the identity, but they want to do it in their time and their way on their terms. This is an Esau way of thinking. This is seed of serpent type of things, taking God's holy word into your own hands and redefining it arbitrarily. God will never stand for such a thing. It will always produce that eat sack and that sit now, that strife and that quarreling. And the call is to repent of your presumption, to redefine things. And in the heart of Esau, to seek the blessings of covenant without bowing before the author. Esau left to his own devices, figures in his jealousy and in his, in, in his new scheme. Well, maybe since my parents aren't too keen on the Hittite ladies, I'll just add to my hair and my one from Ishmael. After all, Ishmael was one of the sons of my grandfather. Did that work? No, it didn't. Because God had not ordained this means. God was jealous of the covenant and jealous of the covenant of marriage, 
owns and dictates its terms, and it is to man's harm and judgment if he takes these kinds of things into his own hands. This is covenant compromise. This continues to be the legacy of Esau. Jacob I have loved, Esau I have hated. Jacob continues to be, not because of himself, but because of God's grace alone, he demonstrates in his repentance and eventually in his change of heart and growing knowledge the son of promise. Meanwhile, Esau continues to show forth the evidence that he has not surrendered and submitted to the gospel. He's trying to secure his own way and to secure, his own, to secure favor by taking matters into his own hands. First, his plan was to kill his brother. Second was to take a wife from the Ishmaelite line to please his dad. But do you guys remember what the scriptures say, particularly in Galatians? And of course, it's evidenced in Abraham's testimony about what Ishmael and Hagar represent. A child not according to promise, but again, a child according to the flesh. And thus is once again pictured that there is no hope according to man's means and mechanisms, no hope according to the flesh. No hope in your own devices. No hope in recreating covenant terms in your own mind according to some arbitrary law. No hope in trying to, you know, bring in the sanctity of something that God alone owns exclusive rights to declare in His holiness, de deems inalterable into your own hands, like so-called gay marriage. There's no hope in those kinds of things. You can't have the benefits of covenant without bowing before the Lord of the covenant. You can't build a house by the tools of your own sinfulness and sinful desires. You labor in vain to build a people, a nation, a law, a family, a marriage, a church, a town, a society. You labor in vain if you do so by the tools of the flesh, according to the means of man and the sinful thing, you know, and the, your own sinfulness and the mechanisms that are immediately within your disposal, and those things that you rely on for comfort in a fallen world that aren't according to the Spirit. This is covenant compromise. And thus, Jacob's calling was clarified by this. Esau continues to pursue favor according to covenant compromise while Jacob is on his pathway to the house of God. Where will you take refuge? Where will you take refuge, saints? In the latest and greatest devices and mechanisms and sinful means, covenant compromise? Or will you take refuge in the house of God? What is the house of God? It's the order, it's the foundation, it's the framework, it's the covenant, it's the word of God, it's the means that he has laid out from this time all the way through to its fulfillment in Christ, that in Christ alone you'll find your salvation and your hope. What is the house of God? The house of God is the realization that you, if you're a believer, are called by God, sovereign, El Shaddai, almighty, blessed to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and directed to follow his law and thankfulness and obedience according to his word now that you are saved. That is the house of God. And if you believe those things and walk in them with all your heart, you are counted among the company, the assembly, the church of the people's that now share the same promises of Jacob and that you place your fortunes and you place your hope of eternal life in the son of Jacob to come. Later, Jacob would meet his wife at a similar place that Isaac's uh, wife was found at a well. And then later, Moses would find his wife at a well. More on this in the future. But I was listening to some commentary this week which tied 
this wife meeting the wife at the well to John chapter 4 where Jesus meets the Samaritan woman there and she confesses her sins and is counted among the company of Jacob. You see, even Jesus, so to speak, symbolically met his bride, you and me, if you've confessed and believed at a well. What does a well represent? God's sovereign provision, God's sovereign purposes, God's appointment, God's timing, God's plan. It represents the act of El Shaddai. And the Bible reinforces these truths from cover to cover. Thus, even as Jacob's calling was clarified by leaving sin and corruption behind, setting his face towards the house of God, and living his life, increasingly so, by the promises given to those who were before him and that would continue by those after, and live, being willing to live even as a fugitive for a time, in contrast to the means of the flesh, even as Jacob's calling was clarified by those things, so we can relate. Our calling is also clarified in sharp contrast to the world even today and its means and mechanisms. So I beg you to think about these things and to apply them and to do two things with the story of Jacob, to boldly proclaim that there is salvation, hope, favor, and covenant grounds in God and his word alone through his Messiah alone, to proclaim that and also to ask God to give you joyful obedience in setting your face toward the house of God and count it great joy to assemble even in this place each week as we thank him and seek to grow in diligent obedience following the God who has saved us. Let us close in prayer. Father, we thank you for the promises of the hope of the gospel that ring true to us from every page of scripture once you open our eyes to see the glories with which you have unveiled them. I pray that you would do some more as we study these things and that they wouldn't just stay on the page but be written on our heart, translated into faithfulness and action. We thank you, Lord, that against all odds and sin itself and the best attempts at man to mess things up, nevertheless, you secured a Messiah for us all the way through the generations. We pray that the same Spirit who raised Jesus Christ from the dead would quicken us to be more faithful to him to walk in these ways, his ways. And finally, we pray that if there are any of the lost, any of those who are struggling to live and striving to live by the means at their disposal, we pray that you would use the proclamation of your word to move them to repentance and faith, that they would turn from trusting in themselves or anything other than Christ, their idols, and to place faith in Christ alone, to repent, to leave their life of strife, of Esek and Sitdon, corruption and sin behind, and to join us in the glorious assembly purchased by the blood of Jesus, the company, the house of God. We thank you, Lord, for these promises. We thank you for your word. May we live beyond this place accordingly. The praise of Jesus Christ and the advance of his kingdom and in his name we pray. Amen.